TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds. Thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. HBR presents. Hi, everyone. You're listening to After Hours. I'm Young Me. I'm Mihir. I'm Rowie. It's good to see you guys. I feel like Rowie has like an especially nice, deep, resonant, I'm Rowie. Yeah, that's my Batman voice. That's your Batman <laughs> voice. Yes. I'm Rowie. <laughs> Wait, does that mean you don't like my voice? No, your voice is so You've soothing. never complimented my voice ever. Oh, my God. Ever. And you know why that is? Because my sister loves your voice and tells me that she loves your voice every time I talk to her, and I've had enough of it. That is such a good comeback, because you were kind of on your heels, you are on the defensive, <laughs> and then you came back on the offensive, and you right. flattered me, so now I'm just smiling over here. <laughs> there you go. And plus, my sister got a mention, so it's all good. <laughs> so listen, you guys, I want to talk about cars today. Ooh. What was your first car, by the way? My first car. I drove a red Nissan Sentra. Ooh. That just says about everything you need to know about Rowie Optimal. <laughs> so, that is the opposite of sexy. <laughs> it was okay. so cool. And I had a brief phase in my life during which I decided that actually deep down I was a surfer. <laughs> and so I put these surf stickers on the back windshield to tell everybody that that's actually who I was. And to compensate for driving around in a Nissan Sentra. In the suburbs of Atlanta. Exactly. (laughs) Where where it was very (laughs) difficult to go surfing. And Rowie, there's literally zero about you now that says surfer. I think there's a tiny little Spicoli. No. Is there a tiny little Spicoli? <laughs> here. do you have a car story? God, my first car was actually a lovely brown Honda Civic wagon that I took from my parents. And I had so much love for that car. It was just so wow. much fun to drive around. But why are you making fun of my car? I love that car. And you've got a brown <laughs> Honda Civic wagon. Yeah, right. no, exactly. No, I'm, it was a kindred spirit. And it's all in love. It's all in love, bro. The saddest thing about looking at cars today is that no one drives a stick. Oh, and I learned on a stick. I agree. Me too. I want to talk about this because my Nissan Sentra was a stick. And I have never driven a car that is not a stick shift, including the current car that I drive. It is hard to buy Ooh, stick Yeah, it's hard to now. buy a stick. Almost impossible. Which is a total loss. Total tragedy. It is a complete yes. loss. And yeah. you know what? I used to drive a stick in San Francisco. And you park on those hills. <laughs> You know those hills? Yeah. And I was good. Yeah. And I keep thinking, what happens if one day there's some calamity and my kids are in some situation where 
in order to survive, they must be able to drive a stick shift. Okay. <laughs> and they can't. And I have failed as a parent. You have failed as a parent. You absolutely you taught have. You your kids how to drive a well, stick Well, I only have one kid who drives, and I taught him how to drive a stick shift. Did you teach him how to use a fax machine, too? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love the fact that young me, in the pantheon of worries she has about her children, has <laughs> conjured up a scenario well, I mean, where their survival depends. Yes, they're in a desert, and there's only one car, and it's a stick. Yeah, I totally <laughs> yeah, see that. I think about this. Okay, so you guys, we actually brought topics in, and the topic I want to talk about is I want to talk about Tesla in the context of the larger future for electric vehicles. Yeah, and then Rowie, you brought in a topic that you claim to know nothing about, but I don't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> you should really believe me when I tell you. Okay. Because the reach that I do for topics about which I know a little bit is so vast. <laughs> so like if I say I know nothing, like I really, really do. <laughs> well, so what is it? I think we have to talk about Bitcoin. Ooh. Oh, this is going to be fun. We've managed like a couple of years of this podcast without ever really deeply engaging Bitcoin. And so let's do it. Let's do it. I'm dying to know what you guys think of Bitcoin. Okay, great. So guys, back in 2012, Tesla released its Model S. Mm -hmm. And back then, which is not that long ago, if instead of buying a Model S, you had instead spent the same amount of money on buying Tesla shares, those shares would now be worth more than $10 million. Mm. And just to give you a sense of scale here, General Motors, GM sells about 12 times as many cars as Tesla. And yet Tesla's mm -hmm. market cap is more than 10 times that of GM. So I wanted to ask you about that, particularly in the context of a market in which the competition for electric vehicles is about to get really, really fierce. So over the next 12 to 18 months, BMW plans to launch five fully electric cars. Mercedes has a couple of big launches planned. Volkswagen has more than a dozen EV models in production. GM is pushing hard on electric. There's startups getting into the game. And of course, a set of Chinese rivals to contend with as well. And yet with these other companies, you don't see their share prices skyrocketing like you do for Tesla. So what do you make of all of this? Are we on the cusp of more mainstream electric vehicle adoption? Mm. And what role do you think Tesla's going to end up playing in all of this? I mean, I think it's been a luxury market for a long time and a kind of virtue signaling as well, which is like, I have enough money to care about the environment, but you don't. And I'm driving an electric vehicle and you're not. This feels like it's getting a little personal. <laughs> she happens to love Teslas. <laughs> but I do think that the market is changing enough so that it's not only a virtue signaling choice. It also makes sense for a household economically to be able to drive a vehicle that is good for them financially, but also makes sense for the environment and climate change. Mm. That's really the transformation in my mind. And that seems like it's really coming quickly now. Yeah. I mean, I've bought into the EV revolution for several reasons. First, you look in Europe and in Asia, especially in China, fast outpacing what's going on in the US. And the US is relatively a laggard in part because regulations got loosened in the last couple of years that made gas vehicles something still desirable. Second, we have technology that's just getting better and better and better. 
And then third, of course, there's just these incredible network effects, which is what you have more charging stations, you have more mm -hmm. availability, and then adoption becomes easier, and then the cost curve gets better, and all those things reinforce each other. So to me, it seems clear in the long run that EVs will dominate. When and how it happens in the short run is really interesting to me, because I think you're right. There are all these players who are coming in. But if anything, I've come to appreciate Tesla's market position more than I ever did before, seeing how difficult it's been for some of the new entrants to come in. It is crowded, but then you find that they push out their vehicle <laughs> delivery dates and you find out that it's a little bit more complicated to do. And then I think you have these advantages to Tesla specifically that are really interesting. One is the stations. The second is, and I think this is the underpinning, and I don't think I really buy it, but the underpinning of the valuation is it ain't about cars, it's about software. And so they have perfected that part of the driving experience to such a degree that it ain't about cars anymore. It's not even about renewables anymore. It's about the software that will end up dictating the whole future. I think that is the only way to make sense of the valuation because otherwise it doesn't make any sense at all. But if you believe stations are so important and you believe software is so distinctive in Tesla, then maybe, maybe, maybe you can make sense of the value. But it seems like it's going to happen and EVs are spectacular. And the driving experience in EVs is also spectacular. So to me, it's all kind of coming together in a pretty remarkable way. Yeah, I think my instincts are very similar to yours. And that is, it's true that the U.S. lags, Europe lags China on EVs. But to some extent, that makes me more confident that we're on the cusp of it. Because when you go there and you see the chicken and egg effect of having charging stations right. and what happens once the infrastructure is in place, you realize that this is the kind of thing that feels like it's happening slowly until suddenly it happens suddenly. Right. And keep in mind, there's something about cars. Cars are very visible and therefore very viral. And the minute you start to see people around you driving them and you start to see charging stations, it really opens up your consideration set when you buy a new car. So the switchover can actually end up happening slowly and then suddenly. Mm. Your comment about the sort of tipping point reminded me of this lovely quote about how falling in love was so similar to falling asleep. It happens slowly at first and then all at once. And if we connect this idea of love to the romance of the automobile, which is a very real thing, for sure for Americans, but I think for many other cultures as well, the way I think about the adoption tipping point is, can I take this electric vehicle on my most romantic, long-awaited cross-country road trip and charge it along the way? Like in the middle of the country, will I know that I can stop and recharge this vehicle? And that romance in both senses, I think, is essential for this kind of tipping point. You know, not to compare, but Felix and me here, they never bring any kind of poetry to our conversation. <laughs> they never bring romance, love, these beautiful metaphors. They don't do any of that. <laughs> but they bring data and insight. <laughs> so everybody has to have a sort of competitive advantage. Me here, you have to step it up. I know, I know. I'm trying to think. I'll try to rhyme on an no, ongoing okay. basis, <laughs> young me, if that'll help. <laughs> so young me, you got started on Tesla. So the market cap is like $800 billion. How does that double in 10 years? I think to justify what you see happening with Tesla, here's what you have to believe. 
So number one, you have to believe that Tesla evolves, as you guys put it, from being a car maker with, I don't know, 15, 20% gross margins into a service provider that provides mobility as a service with much, much greater profit margins. So number two, you also have to believe that this is going to end up being a market where market share doesn't correlate to enterprise value. Mm -hmm. So for example, in the world of mobile phones, Android is by far the global market share leader. And the handset market in general has many players. And yet, even though Apple is not the global market share leader, Mm -hmm. it has an enterprise value that far exceeds all of its competitors. So when it comes to Tesla, you kind of have to believe that this is going to be a market where even though it may get very crowded, market share doesn't necessarily correlate to enterprise value. Number three is sort of a corollary to that. And that is... You have to believe that this is a market where people are going to pay a premium for this highly integrated automotive ecosystem where the user experience is really tightly controlled. In other words, Apple doesn't just sell you a phone. They sell you an ecosystem of hardware plus software plus services, and people are willing to pay a premium for the Apple experience because it integrates all of those things in this cohesive way. Compared to the Android experience, which can also be very good, Mm -hmm. it's more disaggregated, more of a hodgepodge of different hardware and service providers, and the user experience is Mm. a little bit different. And if you look at the automotive market right now, particularly when it comes to EVs, it's so disorganized. You see a bunch of cross-cutting alliances, a reliance on different mix of technology providers like Waymo and Cruise with a much less clear product service vision. Right. And you could argue that although there are lots of companies that are really well positioned to create their version of some Android-like car operating system, Tesla is really the only one positioned to potentially create a more Apple-like experience. Right. And then the final thing I'd say is that You have to believe that your ability to compete in a space that's going to be dominated by electric and dominated by autonomous technology, your ability to compete in those two things is going to depend on, number one, your ability to raise capital, and number two, by your ability to attract the best software engineers, the best AI people, and so on. And you could argue that Tesla is far better positioned to do that than, say, GM. So that would be the case. The other tension I want to ask about Young Me is, how do you reconcile an increased autonomous vehicle future with a consumer-driven passion for Tesla? In this kind of autonomous vehicle future, do I care what is picking me up? Am I buying a car? Or is it being provided as a service? In an autonomous vehicle future, am I not just hailing something that I'm going to go sit in and it's going to take me from here to there and I don't even really care what it is? You know, I think that what we have gotten accustomed to is how terrible, yes, how subpar yes. so much of our driving experiences. Yes. And the car buying process generally, young me. Just soup to nuts. Yeah. And how much room there is to really create something very special. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, when I'm talking about services, I'm not just talking about stuff like navigation software. As an example, it wouldn't surprise me if Tesla were the first company to bundle car insurance with their cars. Mm -hmm. Car insurance is terrible. But car insurance, if done well, can be really, really profitable. 
especially if you can do things that other car insurance providers cannot do, like alert drivers to problems with the car before they occur, like warn you about an accident that's about to happen. So Tesla's onboard monitoring systems already have so many capabilities that would give it a leg up there. And so when I talk about it being a platform for services, I'm talking about it being a platform of that entire automotive ecosystem, which as a consumer, mm-hmm. there are lots of things about it that are really suboptimal. And so if you could imagine one company completely dedicated to the user experience, would that command a premium price? That feels reasonable to me. Is everybody going to go for that? No, 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 no. Some people will go for a different kind of car, just like some people want a beautiful Android phone. And that's fine. Yeah. I mean, I'm really attracted by your emphasis on how broken the car buying experience is. And I think that is totally right. And I think people are searching for something bigger. And that could end up being associated with a bundle of a lot of other services as well. I think that's got to be right. I think that last thing I wanted just to touch upon, though, on this in one of your comments, Young Me, was about raising capital. And one of the things that strikes me about Elon Musk, I don't think people have made this comparison enough. And it may only work for people from India. But, you know, India's largest company is called Reliance. And it was founded by somebody called Dhirubhai Ambani. And he figured out that the way to build a company was to take a new generation of investors and raise capital from them. And it was super cheap to do it that way and to get them into this quasi kind of cult that ended up paying off because he was able to raise capital so cheaply, he was able to do a whole bunch of things. Mm. And I think that is just a huge chunk of what Musk has done. Mm-hmm. He has this really complimentary posture towards the capital markets. Mm-hmm. And it's almost exactly, I think, what Ambani did. And it's something we kind of mock or make fun of a lot of times when we say, like, that's not going to work out well. But when it works, it's very, very powerful. You know, that's so interesting. And Mihir, you were talking about the car buying experience. But I think what I hear Young Me saying is also just the car owning experience mm-hmm. and how yeah. fragmented all of those services are. I never thought about it that way. It seems super, super interesting that this could be a kind of unified car owning experience. And Mihir's pain point is apparently the purchase and your pain point is the insurance or something. But that there's like all of this stuff that could be one product service combination. You know, if you think about it, there's sort of two big parallel battles going on right now in the economy. One is the battle over who is able to profit from the movement of data and information and entertainment across the internet. And that's like Google versus Apple versus Facebook and Netflix and Disney. And then there's a second parallel battle over who is going to be able to profit from the movement of physical things around the world. And that's like Amazon. That's maybe Tesla. I think that's the lens via which some people who believe in Tesla are looking at this stuff. Wait, you didn't sign up for that, young me. You said some people. (laughs) After this passionate exposition. No, 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 no. No. I mean, look, the only reason I'm hedging is that, I mean, the valuation is like really crazy lofty right now. So it's just, (laughs) it makes me, I have to confess. But even that, I have to say, speaks to the fact that I think Tesla captures everything about the current zeitgeist to make it sort of the vanity stock of the moment. There's a Mm. vision that is really aspirational, a founder that is larger than life, a bit unhinged on the one hand. It does seem that way, but yes. on the other hand, is literally launching people into space mm. in the context of a super frothy market. And as a result, you get 
an outlier like Tesla. This is why it's really worthwhile to think about really liking what Tesla is doing and maybe not liking the stock. I think people make this mistake of like, I like right. the companies, so I right. like the stock. And this just strikes me as a situation where I think a lot of what is happening is amazing. I can admire what he's doing and I can really think about it as a positive thing and just not really want to buy the stock. Yeah. You know, I think the mistake people make is they conflate those two. Now, obviously that's worked out very well for people in the last couple of years, but it is worthwhile just remembering that it's okay to like companies without liking their stocks. <laughs> right. This is like the behavioral finance on steroids. <laughs> yeah, <show>. exactly. <laughs> okay, so Rawi, you wanted to talk about Bitcoin. I wanted to talk about this in part because we couldn't really put it off any longer. At least I couldn't. <laughs> and so I have this um, track record of trying to wait out fads. And so the first fad I tried to wait out was email. And then it turned out not to be right. And then I decided to wait out Facebook, which I continue to do. Yeah, you can wait that one out. <laughs> but I think I might be right. Because, you know, the cool kids don't use Facebook. Yeah, it's true. And I've been trying to wait out Bitcoin so that I wouldn't have to learn about it. And, like, now it's impossible. <laughs> it's not going away. We have to make sense of it. And I thought that YouTube would help illuminate what Bitcoin was all about. Mm. But one of the elements of this that I think I'm most curious to explore with YouTube is what should we regard Bitcoin as? It's not money. Right. It doesn't serve the usual purposes that money serves. So money is a medium of exchange, store of value, unit of account. It's not really those things. We can't really use it for most transactions, at least not yet. And so like, what is it? Is it like gold? Like we don't pay for stuff in gold, at least I don't. So like, how should we place it in the financial world? Right. I mean, your question mm -hmm. is exactly right. It was pitched as a currency, but it's really not a currency because it doesn't have the characteristics right. that you just identified, which is medium of exchange, stable store of value. It doesn't have those characteristics. So that was kind of the initial pitch on it, but it is morphing into an asset. Now, then you have to ask yourself, what kind of asset is it and what function does it provide in a portfolio or in the world? And I think you're right, again, to say gold is the most reasonable analog. So it is fundamentally a speculative asset. So why are speculative assets useful or what role can they play? And the answer is one role they can play is it's a lottery ticket and people can speculate with it and it's fun to trade in it and that's possible. Or it's a hedging device of some kind. Mm -hmm. And this is an important class of assets, which is just a way of saying, why do people buy gold? Well, I'm not entirely sure, but some version of it is this. <laughs> Fiat currencies go away. We all go to Mad Max. And then we're going to be trading in gold bars in our caves because the world is going to end. Mm -hmm. So let's think about those two arguments. It's a speculative asset, which is fun to trade. I think that's definitely true and happening. The second is, okay, no, it's a good hedging asset. It's a good way to think about the world because who knows? There's this existential risk that paper money goes away. And that is also just an artifact of our collective belief. So why not? And I think there, that's conceivable, and you might want to make it up as part of your portfolio as a result. The problem is, it doesn't look like it trades in that way. So it tends to go up when everything's going up, which is not what you want from an asset that is providing some hedging. Anyway, so I guess a long way to think about it is money is, I don't think, the right way to think about it. But then you have to talk about it as an asset, and then you have to talk about what features does it provide you as an asset. And I don't think the hedging story is terribly compelling 
in part because I think in the Mad Max outcome, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to find my Bitcoins. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm going to be logging on to get my Bitcoins. And so then maybe it's more just a speculative asset. Maybe it's just an asset which satisfies the desire that is rampant today to speculate. And then you just understand it as that. I mean, every currency is a social construction, even the so-called fiat currencies. Mm. It could be shells. It could be dollars. The beauty of the government-issued fiat currencies is there's some kind of credibility behind them. But I think that this idea that it's just a speculative asset would be disappointing to the people who are the true believers in it because that's not what they had in mind. I think they had in mind some sort of disintermediation of public authority in some kind of profound way, right. which doesn't seem imminent. And if it's a Mad Max hedge, like some apocalyptic hedge, then boy, we should be nervous every time Bitcoin goes up because it means people think like we're going to be stuck in a desert eating dog food with our dog. Like that's really a sort of harrowing kind of imagination of what it means. And this is what's so intriguing about your comment, Rawi, is that there's a political element to this belief system, right? There's a political element to this thesis, which is the world is upside down. Power is not in our hands. There will be a revolution and <laughs> you need to believe in the revolution. And Bitcoin is a way to believe in the revolution. Mm -hmm. So I'm just struck by not just you know, we're talking about it as an asset or a currency, but it's also an ideology of sorts. But it could also be many things. Right. So there could be a small subset of people for whom it is an ideology. And then there could be another set of people. And for them, it is not an ideology, but rather it's just a bet on human nature. They understand how the market moves these days and the role that forums like Reddit right. and word of mouth tends to operate. And they understand that there is a little bit of FOMO, a momentum. And the FOMO aspect of this is if you're sitting on the outside, it is very difficult not to wade in mm. and say, hey, you know what? I'm going to buy a little bit of Bitcoin just in case I'm wrong. Even if I'm not a believer, you start to feel stupid if you don't participate. So in this case, FOMO creates a self-fulfilling prophecy. So for example, you're now beginning to see lots of Big institutional investors take an interest in Bitcoin, big pension funds, big endowment funds. Is that because they believe in this long-term ideology? They believe in the Mad Max scenario? Not necessarily. Does it mean that it's irrational behavior? That's also not true. It could be completely rational because you believe that other people are going to jump in. But the self-fulfilling prophecy, and I think this ties to our Tesla conversation, which is in that case, shareholders believe, and then he's able to create something with that, which is of lasting value, which is, for example, the network of charging stations, which is, for example, so much momentum in the product markets. In this case, what do you end up holding? Mm -hmm. So your self-fulfilling prophecy is interesting, but I don't see where it ends. And then you're just in a chain of, I'm doing it because he did it. And we know how that ends typically, which is, again, not terribly well. There is an interesting geopolitical element to it that we could bring in that complicates this Maybe a little bit, but one of the geopolitical elements is the U.S. sanctions regime in the world. Mm -hmm. Basically, if any transaction touches the U.S. financial system and touches the U.S. dollar, it is covered by U.S. sanctions, even if those companies or the countries are not doing business with U.S. companies or in the United States, but just because it touches the dollar and the U.S. financial system. And this Bitcoin system is separate from that, mm -hmm. which is why this might be desirable to 
not be part of the U.S. financial system, but I think is also part of why there are a lot of sketchy transactions that happen in Bitcoin. <laughs> mm -hmm. But now, if we go down that path, Rawi, which I think you're right to go down, you're really talking about something that's quite on the margins of society. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean sketchy transactions where you don't want to be part of this or you don't want to be part of the global financial order. Now, maybe you say, yeah, well, look, the U.S. is not going to dominate the global financial order, and this is the beginning of that unbundling, and maybe that's right, but it's still got to be better than the RMB or the euro or, totally, you know, or totally. the yen. And so the other piece of it that's interesting to me is if central banks got serious about digital currencies- Which they are. Which they totally. are. Then I think that in a way really undercuts the Bitcoin per se version of this because some of the- advantages of digital currencies will end up being co-opted by the providers of the fiat currency. And so that to me is in a way even more potentially troubling to the folks who really love it. I think the mistake we're making though in this conversation, because I agree with everything, is trying to hew to some kind of rationality here. Right. And I'm not trying to imply that that makes this irrational behavior. I think there's something quite rational going on. But I think the fundamental problem with Bitcoin is that it's hard to imagine it ever being used as a medium exchange. As long as there's a hard cap on the number of coins out there, you're creating an incentive to hoard it. Yeah, that's exactly right. This is the kind of self-defeating piece of it, Youngmi. I think you should, just to be clear, like the reason why a medium exchange works is because you want to use it. Exactly. As a medium exchange. But if it's a speculative asset that you're holding because the price goes up, you ain't going to use it as a medium exchange. <laughs> that's right. And as long as that hard cap exists, that's going to be true, which means it will never work as a medium exchange. I mean, forget all the other problems, like the power consumption and all the rest of it. But if you actually, by the way, Youngmi, if you loosened the hard cap, then that would undercut the very premise of exactly. the entire enterprise. <laughs> so this is the box you're in. But having said that, if you wanted to create a speculative currency, if you wanted to create one, what characteristics would it have to have? It would have to be secure, encrypted, accessible, scarce, you know, all of the qualities that Bitcoin has. And then you would have the really hard challenge of just getting the whole world to believe it has value, to just believe and to bestow value upon it. And that's the hard part. And that's what's actually happening before our eyes. But this is, I think, the theme of these conversations we've been having, which is I've struggled so much with what is going on in these worlds because I'm trying to use a rational lens on these things, right? Right. And I'm okay with deviations from rationality. I have no problem with it. But I also have a problem with kind of throwing up my hands and saying, we don't need to understand it. We just got to go with it. And I'm not saying that's what you said, but I think some people say that, right? Which is we don't need to understand any of this stuff. You just got to go with it. And that is something I can't do. I don't know. That's what I feel like has become so hard about financial markets today. And that's why I think it's really important for us before we close to underscore the risks associated with getting into this asset. I'll tell you one of the risks on my mind. I had a former student who started a blockchain-based company, and I somehow got allocated part of their initial coin offering, which was in a cryptocurrency. And this was a few years ago now. And I don't know how to find that anymore. So, <laughs> <laughs> so 
<laughs> That's another risk. Yes. Well, did you see that New York Times article about the guy who has like $200 million in Bitcoin, but he can't remember the password? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yes. me. I think I have $15 <laughs> yeah. worth of Bitcoin, but and I can't remember the password. So it's directionally the same story. But I'll pose this question sort of facetiously, but I kind of mean it, especially since we just talked about Tesla. The electric vehicle market is going to require a lot more electricity generation as a mode of delivering power for movement. And so, like, do we have enough electricity generating capacity to do both of these, to do, like, <laughs> both electric vehicles and <laughs> mining of cryptocurrencies? It is kind of staggering to think about the amounts of power that are being used to mine these coins today. And so as that progresses, one can imagine just how complicated this is going to get. I don't think it crowds out electric vehicles per se, Robbie, as much as it raises kind of sustainability issues broadly <laughs> about mm -hmm, what this mm -hmm. asset is providing and what it's costing us as well, I think is a really interesting question. Okay, so we can have EVs or we can have Bitcoin, but we can't have both. That's what I hear you saying. <laughs> or in my case, neither. <laughs> yeah, my case, yeah. neither. Really. <laughs> okay, so picks. You already know what my recommendation is going to be because I emailed it after I saw <laughs> mm -hmm. it. I was so taken with it. I said, you guys got to watch this. So there's this multidisciplinary artist named Derek Delgadio. He has a show on Hulu called In and of Itself, and it is so good. It's kind of mesmerizing. It's hard to explain what it is, young me. It is hard to explain. He's a magician, first of all, and he's a storyteller. And so he gets up on stage and he begins to tell stories. He does a little magic. And you think, what is this? And what's amazing about it is how slow and deliberate he is. There's nothing flashy about him. And for a while as you're watching it, I have to confess there were moments I wasn't sure where it was going, but I stayed with it to the end. And it ended up being incredibly moving and utterly memorable. Yeah. I mean, it's completely indescribable. And the last 20 minutes are very powerful and emotionally kind of captivating and magical. Like, I think the most important thing about it is it is really magical. If you tried to, to our previous conversation, impose a frame of rationality upon it, you won't enjoy it. Exactly. <laughs> but if you go with it, the last 20 minutes are spectacular. So I don't want to say too much about it because the more you say, the more it sort of ruins it. Yeah. But you should check it out. Derek Delgadio, in and of itself on Hulu. That's my recommendation. Me here. So I've, you know, mentioned puzzles before, but I have two new things to recommend on the puzzle front. The first is there's a lovely documentary about the inventor of Ken Ken, whose name is Tetsuya Miyamoto on the New Yorker site. And the reason it's exciting is not just because if you love Ken Ken, which I'm sure everyone does, obviously, but moreover, <laughs> it becomes a parable about the conflict between art and technology. So Ken Ken puzzles are easily generated by computers, huh. but this guy believes and the people who do his puzzles believe that no a machine can't create this algorithmic based thing like Tetsuo Miyamoto can. Wait, so one Ken Ken puzzle can be more artistically beautiful than another? Indeed. And in fact, you feel that when you solve puzzles, you can feel some are just okay and some they give you a rush and that's what he's identified. And the related recommendation is Spelling Bee at the New York Times by a guy named Sam Azursky is so good as a puzzle. Huh. You can wake up in the morning and be like, did you see Spelling Bee, the grid today? Because it is so fantastic. It's a word puzzle where you kind of have to take anagrams and make letters. 
you could think like a computer could do it, but you see what he's doing and it's just spectacular. Huh. So Tetsuo Miyamoto's documentary at the New Yorker and the New York Times website and the Spelling Bee. I haven't tried Spelling Bee. I oh, will try that. I only like, will warn you, it oh, is totally addictive. And you see Mahir is into romance. He's just into the romance of puzzles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or to me, there. romance is a puzzle, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bro. You God. wanted poetry, young me. You wanted poetry. Okay. <laughs> bye. Rowie. My recommendation is a cookie. A cookie. Okay. A cookie. So there's this famous French baker, Apollonia Poilon. The Poilon Bakery is one of the legendary bakeries in France. And she has, in a cookbook she recently published, this cookie called Punition, which is, as you know, the French word for punishment. And there's this <laughs> lovely backstory. <laughs> behind it, which is like some great grandma would ask the kids when they came back from school whether they were good kids at school, and they would always say yes, and then she would say, come get your punishment, and it was this little cookie. <laughs> and I baked them for the first time with the help of my daughter, who is more expert than I. I I'm more of a cooker than a baker. And they're so delicious and buttery. And since everybody's decided to bake during the pandemic, why not this? It's a lovely cookbook, this Poilon cookbook. The photography is beautiful. The recipes are delicious. But this recipe for the punition, the punishment cookies, which are so, so delicious and fun. That is such a good recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's fantastic. We are out of time. So that's it for this week. You are listening to After Hours from the HBR Podcast Network. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning, it feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Go 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more.